are listening to the Calvary Church Podcast, where each episode features a life-transforming message that was previously recorded in one of our services. And now, let's join a service that's already in progress. I don't know about you, but I just feel like the Bible comes alive when we really study it with purpose, with intention, really dig into its original context and realize every time the Bible is alive and well in the year 2020. And I'm so thankful for that. And so I've thought about as we're coming to the end, and this is my last time to teach on this particular topic of how many times we have read these portions of scripture together in Growth University. And I have felt like, man, you could insert a name or some kind of issue that we're dealing with right now into what Paul is writing about. And it's like he's right here with us, talking to us, coaching us through the most bizarre year most of us have ever had. Paul's writing is speaking to us. And so I'm very thankful for that. And I realized that the first week I did some teaching on Paul himself. But as I was studying today, there is something that First and Second Thessalonians, which is our books for tonight, uh, bring out about him as a person and as a leader that I just, I could not pass up the opportunity to acknowledge it and bring it to your attention. And that it's very simply this, that Paul was an encourager. In his letters that we have already gone over together, he usually starts by greeting people, by thanking them, by encouraging them for acknowledging their contribution to the work of God, acknowledging who they are, what their uh, relationship means to him as an individual. And he even ends his letter. Sometimes in the same letter, he goes back again and he says, greet so-and-so for me. Remember when we looked at the book of Philippians, he was very purposeful in the beginning of those chapters as he was encouraging those precious people to to stay faithful and to uh, be a part of what he was doing like they had always been. He acknowledged, you have always encouraged me. You have always partnered with me and supported me financially. And I think that's so amazing because then we saw it again in the book of Romans where he acknowledged Aquila and Priscilla and he called them helpers in Christ. And so we understand that as powerful as Paul was, as important as he was, he was not a lone ranger in the gospel. He made himself a part of the church very purposefully. He made himself accountable to the church. He loved and cherished the people of God. And so we're going to begin with 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 2 through 4 to this point. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you. Listen to him affirming these precious people. And then in verse 7, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. Paul lets the church in Thessalonica know right away, I pray for you. I believe in you. You're doing a great job living for God. You are an example to all believers. And so for all of his success, all of his intelligence, I've mentioned before, I I would guess he had a very intense 
maybe a little intimidating personality, but Paul didn't just correct people and teach people, but he endeared himself to people by valuing them, by loving them, by expressing that appreciation for them. He was not too big to affirm other people. Like any good parent, he must have understood that the people that I discipline and correct, I better turn around and encourage too. That's a good example. We certainly had amazing examples of that in our bishops, NRP 1 and 2. And as believers, we do well to follow Paul's example in this way, that we should appreciate other people. We should express it. We shouldn't just think it. We should write it down. We should tell them. We should go out of our way to tell people, to be intentional, to encourage people. Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 6, verse 10, this is biblical, what we're talking about. So then as we have opportunity, every chance you can, let us do good to everyone. And especially to those who are of the household of faith. Paul lived by those words. And he instructs us to live as Christians by those words. Amen. And so tonight we are going to look, our our quick overview here, at Paul's letters to the churches in Thessalonica. We know that he most likely wrote this letter from Corinth near the end of his second missionary journey. Would have been somewhere between 49 to 51 AD, so a very, very long time ago. And this city of Thessalonica would have been the capital of Macedonia, which is a Roman province. So a very prominent city, as you can see on our map, hopefully, I don't know, but it's up there, just trust me. But Paul writes as the pastor and the founder of this congregation. He has great affection for this particular group of people, uh, second only probably to the Philippian church. They're very special for him. They're his babies, if you will, in the gospel. And so he begins the book by greeting them on behalf of himself and Silvanus. Has anybody ever wondered who Silvanus is? It's Silas. He changes it up. He uses another name. I don't know if you've noticed that sometimes they have different names, John, Mark, same guy. So it's Silas and Timothy. Silas and Timothy had helped him start this particular church. And if you remember, in Acts 16, when Paul and Silas were imprisoned while they were in Philippi, they were actually en route to Thessalonica when that happened. And I think I have a picture of some of the ruins of, yep, that's what's left of Thessalonica. Timothy had been set by Paul. So Timothy is the uh, letter bearer, if you will. He's the messenger. And I wonder if this was an intimidating assignment for young Timothy at this time in his life. He doesn't have a lot of experience. And so we know by Paul's own admission, he's not just coming to scout the land, check on the troops, assess the situation. But Paul has actually very intentionally sent him to help pastor these people, to disciple them. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 2, we read, And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker. Isn't that cool, Paul? Talking about Timothy like he's his equal. That's so cool. 
in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in your faith. That word establish meaning to disciple them, to continue to pastor them and teach them, help them in their relationship with God. Because Paul understood the importance of discipleship. That salvation is not just this one-stop shop to say, good luck with that, congratulations, here's your baptismal certificate, hope you make it. No, Paul sent young Timothy there to say, these people need to continue to be helped. This is a life-going process of discipleship, and we talked about that a lot. If you remember way back in January in that other world we lived in. Before it all began, we had a great series, I thought, on contagious Christianity. And we really talked about discipleship. (laughs) And now we're in the twilight zone. (laughs) We had no idea, did we? (laughs) We were so young and foolish. Anyway, sorry, I digress. I'm ranting. I need to get back to the book. Okay, so Timothy gives a report to Paul. And he also passes along a few very interesting questions that the congregation has for their pastor, Pastor Paul. And so this first letter is Paul's answer to those questions. And then the second letter, which is shorter, is a continuation of the same teaching because they continued to struggle even after the first letter. So that should make us all feel better, right? They're still struggling. It's okay. So, with that said, let's look at 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. Both letters are important, and so we're going to study them together. And I think it can be very helpful, especially in books like this, to understand that they are connected to each other, that when they're original form, they are not broken up into chapter and verse. Has anybody seen um, a reader's Bible where they have omitted... Um, chapters and verses, and basically it's just paragraphs like you were reading a regular book. I think I have a picture um, Pastor Tom took for me of his. Do you have it? Okay, I know you can't see it very well, but that is the beginning of First Thessalonians. And so you see it's not, it doesn't have a lot of indentations. And what's really neat about reading that, the Bible this way, in my opinion, as someone who's you know grown up, around the scripture, is that you um, realize the cohesiveness of many things all put together, and you're not distracted by the way things are divided up. It's especially helpful when you're reading like a, a story, particularly in the book of Acts, you realize, oh my word, all this is happening on the same day. This is crazy. Um, where you may not pick up on some of those details. So I just, anything I can do to encourage you and help you, I I try to do that. So I recommend the Reader's Bible. But the first letter is Paul's response to two very important questions, two questions that I'm so thankful the church in Thessalonica asked the Apostle Paul. And the first one is this, what will happen when Christ returns? Has anybody ever wondered that? Absolutely. Absolutely. All right, and then they asked him, when will he return? I've been asking that a lot. What will happen? What's it going to look like? What's it going to be like? And when is it going to happen? All right, and so this gives us our main theme for both books, which is the coming of the Lord. What a great topic to talk about right now. Or the parousia, which means the second coming. Mm -hmm. Throw a little Greek on you. Okay, so it's important for us to know that the concern that this church had was very real. 
It was very personal because they had lost uh, members of their congregation, had died very suddenly, very unexpectedly. And so their anxiety was that they had missed, that they would miss the rapture because they had not lived to see it. See, for these people, when Jesus said he would come, Maranatha, he's coming. We're looking every day. We're expecting it. And so for them, it compounded their grief to say, not only have we lost them, but we've lost them forever because they're not going to be here when Jesus returns. And so this is a very heartbreaking concern. And so Paul writes to them very clearly in the passage of Thessalonians, the first letter that we're going to focus on quickly is chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who do have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not perceive those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. And so quickly, from these Five verses, just three things that I think are really significant for us to understand about the rapture. The first one is that Paul uses the term sleep to describe those who have passed away. And we understand that we do not, experience, we do not view death in the same way as Christians. We view it very differently because we believe, according to the Bible, according to God's promise to us, that death is not final. Right? And so Paul very intentionally comforts these people with the idea to say they are asleep. They are not lost to you forever. And so I thought it was very interesting. I never really thought about this before today that Jesus used that terminology. It's not new to Paul. Paul did not, was not the first person to say that, but rather Jesus did a couple of times. In Matthew 9, remember with Jairus' daughter when the mourners were crying over his daughter who was deceased? What did Jesus tell them? She's not dead. She's only sleeping. And then in conversation with his disciples in John 11 on their way to see Lazarus, Jesus says, I have to go wake Lazarus from his sleep. In the context, the disciples argued with him and said, oh no, God, if he's sick, let him sleep. They didn't know what Jesus already knew, that Lazarus was dead. But from his perspective, he was just asleep. Death is not permanent. Amen. And this is why Paul tells them, we don't want you to be uninformed. We don't want you to grieve as if you had no hope. You don't have to grieve like people who don't have Christ in their lives grieve. And so when we die... We do not cease to exist. I hope you believe that tonight. Our earthly life concludes, but those who are dead are simply resting. 
They are waiting for the coming of the Lord. The second thing I want to point out to you is what he makes to very clear to them, that the dead precede the living in the rapture. This is so cool of Paul to say, they're not only going to not miss it, they're going to be there and they're going to meet the Lord before you do. Isn't that cool? Jeremy Painter, the author of the book that we're reading, makes a point that I thought was just so amazing I had to share with you. That in Greco-Roman literature, when a general or a conquering king paraded through a city, that it was custom for the people to follow the king or the general through the town. And they followed in order of rank or in order of importance. And so Paul is probably um, connecting those dots for them in the context of their culture to say, this is an honor that the dead receive as part of their reward in Christ. That they go first as a reward for their faithfulness to God till the end of their lives. They get to go first and you get to follow if you're alive and remain when the Lord returns. And I don't know about you, but that makes me very happy. That comforts me because there are people that I love that are resting in the Lord, and I think they deserve an honor like that. Don't you feel comforted by that tonight? Amen. Amen. And so the third thing is the three sounds, three sounds that Paul describes in what we know as verse 16, a shout, the voice of the archangel, and the trumpet of God. And, you know, I suppose I I would have to be honest that I have empathy for the angst of these precious saints of God when they are grappling with such devastating, unexpected loss in their lives. It's natural for us to wonder what happens to the people that we love when they die. And so these saints of God were so unsure about what happened to their friends that they were tormented by this idea of their loved ones not being with them in eternity. And so to me, this makes the specifics of what Paul explains so powerful and so exciting. It's as if Paul is saying, don't you worry. When Jesus comes, you're going to know it. You're going to know it right away. Because you're going to hear three things. The first one is a shout. I don't know if you're weird like me, but I have thought often about, what is that shout going to be like? Is it going to be a woo? Is it going to be a ow? I don't know. Is it going to be a hey? I'm here. I don't know. But it's going to be a shout. It's going to be loud. It's going to get our attention. The second thing they're going to hear, we're going to hear, is the sound of an archangel. When we were kids, my dad would pray with us every night, and he would pray for God's strongest and his biggest angels. He would pray for archangels. So that's what that means. The biggest, baddest angel in heaven is going to blow a trumpet to let us know that Jesus has arrived to take us home. Amen. And then uh, finally, those are my place. So the trump of God, the trump of God, the sound of the archangel. What am I missing, y'all? Oh, I, I said them. I just didn't number them. I'm sorry. So we've got the shout. We've got the sound of the trumpet. Sorry, I got excited and I got off my notes. And then we're going to hear the voice of an archangel. And we are going to know, Paul says. 
And so he's assuring them this is what's going to happen. So he's implying, have any of these things happened? The answer is no. And so you can have peace, not just that he has not come yet, not just that the dead will go first and they will be included in this glorious event, but you are going to know when it happens. You're going to hear it when it happens. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Maranatha, Jesus is coming. And so the purpose of all that Paul is teaching them is to comfort them is to push back any fears, any anxieties, any worries that they have about what the coming of the Lord will be like. Paul says, you don't have to worry about it. This is what you need to know, and you can be comforted by that. Amen. And so, again, the the teachings of these two books are connected, and the second letter is on the return of the Lord again. Because, unfortunately, even though Paul did this amazing, very specific teaching, Not long after the letter is received and read by them, somebody comes in and confuses them yet again. Not only were they struggling with what happened to our loved friends who are no longer with us, but now someone comes in after Paul, possibly speaking on Paul's behalf, and says, yeah, well, it doesn't matter because you missed the rapture. It already happened. Isn't that hateful? Isn't that cruel? I could just see... Paul getting really mad at all of this when he hears about this. So 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 1 and 2. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. And so here Paul seems to be acknowledging there's confusion in the camp again. Thanks for listening the first time. What I told you before is still true. So verses 3 through 5. Let no one deceive you in any way. For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat, this is very significant, in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? That was a nice way of saying, thanks, guys. (laughs) Glad you listened to me. (laughs) So he's talking about the Antichrist. And so he's describing him. He describes him with some very different terms that I think are significant to us, the um, man of lawlessness, the son of destruction. And basically he says he will come and he will pose as if he is God. Not only that in a theoretical sense, but he will actually place himself on the throne in the temple. And again, putting that information to them to say, has anybody done that yet? The answer was no. The answer is still no. And so listen to the the chronological uh, timeline that Paul gives them that first the Antichrist will make himself known. How will we know that? He will position himself as if he were God. He will use his influence to get people to acknowledge him and worship him as such. He will place himself in the temple very strategically. And then Paul says, 
then the rapture of the church will take place. And so we know the rapture will happen. We'll hear the three sounds. The dead in Christ will rise first. And then those of us who are alive when Jesus returns will join them in the air. I'll fly away, oh glory. Amen. And so, again, this whole idea of what the Bible tells us and what the Bible does not tell us is very intentional on the part of God. I have to believe that if what we have is for the purpose of comforting us and helping us, then the opposite is true that what we don't know is also meant to help us and comfort us and keep our eyes on the Lord where they belong. Amen. All right, so we come to our app time, and this is going to be very different. We're not going to talk about the Antichrist or the Mark of the Beast, so don't worry about that. Because that is not the point of what Paul is writing. The point is to comfort them. The point is to remind them of what they had been taught, what they know about God and his character. And so your job tonight during app time is to encourage someone around you with a promise of God for them. A verse you know, something you understand, maybe about what they're going on in their life, and just quickly tell them, God is for you. God won't leave you comfortless. He'll come to you. Whatever comes to your mind, I know I'm stretching you a little bit, but that's okay. Because that was the whole point of Thessalonians was remember what the word of God says and stop believing the lies. Stop believing lies you're telling yourself. Stop believing lies other people are telling you. What does the word of God tell you? All right? And so your job tonight is to encourage somebody with what you know the word of God says for them. All right? We'll give you a couple minutes. Here we go. Be brave. You can do it. Good job. I think you were doing your assignment. Some of us are laughing. The joy of the Lord is our strength. It's good. Happy about that. But as we conclude tonight, this installment of Growth University, I want to quickly draw your attention to the way Paul concludes both of these dynamic letters. And I think it's worth noting tonight that after such clear teaching on the end of time, Paul gives his readers then and us right now important instruction on how to live to be ready for that day. Okay? 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 14 through 22. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another And to everyone, rejoice always. 
pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God and Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Be ready. That's the concluding thought after all this teaching. He speaks to practical living as if to say, don't get caught up in the drama and in the sensationalism of all of this. What I've told you and what I didn't tell you. Don't obsess over that. Live your lives. Live ready. Make decisions like you know he's coming. Make decisions like you believe it could happen at any time and that you will know when it happens. Do good, rejoice, pray, give thanks, test everything, abstain from evil because Jesus is coming again. Amen. I'm going to invite you to stand with me. And so today as I was studying, I felt to uh, read together some of Paul's parting words here. Um, And make it a prayer for us. I want us to pray together in dismissal tonight. Uh, Because both of these verses, I find it so amazing that Paul speaks of the God of peace. He speaks of the Lord of peace. These people who had struggled with fear and anxiety. These people who were grieving and mourning and confused. He says the God of peace is with you. He's going to help you. He's going to keep you in peace. And I don't know about you, but I claim that for all of us right now. So let's read these verses and then agree in prayer towards them. 1 Thessalonians 5.23 Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. And then 2 Thessalonians 3.16, now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. Amen. Yes, Lord, sign me up for that. The Lord be with you all. We can pray this and we don't have to be fearful. He is a God of peace. He will keep us in peace in all things. He will do it. Amen. So let's pray to that end. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word that doesn't just instruct us, Lord. It encourages us. It strengthens us. Lord, what you tell us, what you don't tell us, it is all part of your perfect plan for us. I thank you, God, for the promise of the rapture. Lord, that death is not final, that those that we love who have gone on, Lord, they are resting, they are sleeping and waiting your return, that we have hope for eternity. We have hope beyond this life, beyond this world and what it offers us. We have the hope of eternity with you and with your people forever. And so God, while we wait, be the God of peace in our lives. Isaiah called you the Prince of Peace. 
that you will keep us in all things. I pray for every household present in this place that you would keep them in your peace in every situation that they face. Lord, help us to comfort each other like we did tonight, to speak your word, to push back against the lies that we tell ourselves, the lies that maybe others tell us, the lies that the enemy would love to hurt us with, and let us receive your word wholeheartedly and wait and live for you in faith. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. This podcast was brought to you by the Calvary Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. For more information about the Calvary Church, please visit our website at www.thecalvarychurch.com. Consider joining us for a service where you will find friendly people, high-energy music, and life-transforming preaching and teaching from a biblical worldview. You can find our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or on our website at www.thecalvarychurch.com. Until next time, thanks for listening.